You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Hello, fellow listeners of Already Gone. My name is Jordan. You may know me from my show, The Nighttime Podcast. Like Nina, I spend a significant time researching and preparing podcast episodes to share the stories that I feel are important. I wanted to use this message as an opportunity to introduce myself and invite you to check out either of my shows. Since 2015, I've been covering true crime, mysteries, and a variety of weird and wonderful stories set in Canada on my show, The Nighttime Podcast. But I think listeners have already gone, may be especially interested in my newly launched show called Emma Filipoff is Missing. In this standalone series, I'm doing a deep dive into the still unexplained disappearance of then 26-year-old Emma Filipoff, who was last seen standing shoeless on a busy downtown intersection in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. One of the many troubling details of Emma's case is that the last people to speak to her were the local police who decided she was safe and sound. I believe what makes my coverage of Emma's case so powerful is that I've been able to partner with her mother and many of her close friends to provide a detailed telling of the events that lead up to Emma's troubling disappearance. You can hear both of my shows wherever podcasts are available. So please take a moment and subscribe to the Nighttime Podcast and Emma Filipoff is Missing. Now let's get back to Nina and Already Gone. Old, cold, and unsolved cases are my favorite. Really, I love covering them. But sometimes, sometimes you need a closed case. Something with an arrest, and a trial, and a resolution. And this week's story will give you some of those things. But there are also unanswered questions. So many unanswered questions. And these questions, if you had to ask them, well... They break your heart. Questions like, where's the baby? Where is my grandchild? Michigan was the first English-speaking territory in the world to abolish the death penalty, which we did back in 1847. Right now, in 2018, we have a man on death row. His name is Marvin Gabrion. And his crimes are as terrible, cruel, and brutal as you can imagine. At the time of this recording, Gabriel is housed at a federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana, awaiting execution. To understand why this case, his case, is significant, it helps to know how we got here. The road to abolishing the death penalty started in the 1820s when Michigan was still a territory. A man named Patrick Fitzpatrick lived across the river from Detroit, in what is now Windsor, Ontario, Canada. Fitzpatrick was accused of the rape and murder of his landlord's daughter. Law enforcement didn't have much evidence, but Fitzpatrick was tried and convicted of her murder. His sentence was death by hanging, and he was executed in 1828. In 1835, Fitzpatrick's friend and roommate, he made a deathbed confession. You see, he was the rapist and murderer. The wrong man went to the gallows seven years earlier. In 1830, a Detroit innkeeper, 50-year-old Stephen Gifford Simmons, spent the evening drinking, 
When he made it home that night, he woke up his wife, Levana, and insisted that she join him for a drink. When Levana refused, Simmons became belligerent, and he assaulted her, slapping her, and he punched her in the stomach. That punch proved fatal. Levana died of her injuries, and Simmons was put on trial for her death. His children, who witnessed the assault, testified that their father often drank and became violent. The jury found Simmons guilty, and he was sentenced to death. Wayne County Sheriff Thomas Knapp, he felt that while Simmons was responsible for the death of his wife, it wasn't intentional, nor was it premeditated, and he refused to carry out the death sentence. Michigan Territorial Governor Lewis Cass appointed another man, Ben Woodworth, as a temporary sheriff so the execution would move forward. Within days, gallows were erected along Gratiot Avenue, not far from the area that now houses Eastern Market. Bleachers went up so the public would have a good view of the event. A military band played for the spectators as they waited for the execution to be performed. Street vendors roamed through the crowds selling food, whiskey, and rum. As Simmons stood on the gallows, Moments before his execution, with thousands of people looking on, Woodward asked him if he had any last words. Simmons responded with a hymn. Show pity, Lord, O Lord, forgive. Let a repenting rebel live. Are not thy mercies full and free? May not a sinner trust in thee? My crimes are great, but can't surpass the power and glory of thy grace, great God. Thy nature hath no bound, so let thy pardoning love be found. Despite these stirring words, the crowds were not disappointed. Simmons' execution was carried out. It would take another decade, but on March 1st, 1847, Michigan abolished the death penalty substituting mandatory life in prison for those found guilty of the worst crimes. Today, more than 170 years later, we look at the many crimes of Marvin Gabrion, who awaits execution on death row in Indiana. He's on death row because he was convicted of first-degree murder in Michigan, for a crime that was committed on federal land. But before we can talk about Gabrion's case and his crimes— we once again need to travel back in time, this time to 1938. Because 1938 is the last time the state of Michigan executed someone for murder. His name was Anthony Chibatoris, and he was no stranger to law enforcement. He went to prison at the age of 20 for a bank robbery. He was released after a couple of years, and in 1927, he was arrested in Kentucky for violating the Dyer Act. If, like me, you aren't familiar with the Dyer Act, it's named for Leonidas C. Dyer, a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Missouri. In 1919, he authored a law that made transporting stolen cars across state lines a federal crime. After Chibatoris was released from prison for car theft, he made his way back to Michigan. While the state was hard hit by the Depression, many came to the area hoping to find work. 
It was September 29, 1937, that Anthony Chibatoris and Jack Gracie decided to rob the Chemical State Savings Bank in downtown Midland. Midland was home to Dow Chemical Company, which opened there in 1897. In the first third of the 20th century, Dow was known for producing bleach, bromide, and magnesium. To prepare for the robbery, Chiba Torres was armed with a handgun, and Gracie carried a sawed-off shotgun when they entered the bank. The two men struggled with the bank manager, 68-year-old C.H. McComber, who tried to get the gun away from Gracie, while Chiba Torres turned his attention to Paul Bywater, the lead teller. Both McCumber and Bywater were shot, but neither was seriously wounded. Dr. Frank Hardy, a dentist with offices above the bank, heard the shooting and he grabbed his deer rifle, firing on the men from his second-floor window as they fled the building. Gracie and Chiba Torres jumped into their car to speed away. When Hardy's shots struck their getaway car, they crashed. The two men exited the vehicle and tried to commandeer a truck from Henry Porter, when Porter resisted, Chibatoris shot him. Dr. Hardy, who had a view of the proceedings from his office, took aim with his deer rifle again and shot Gracie in the head, killing him instantly. He wounded Chibatoris, shooting him in the arm, and the surviving bank robber took off on foot, only to be captured by Midland County Sheriff Ira Smith. Initially, Chibatoris was charged with attempted bank robbery until the truck driver, Henry Porter, died from his injuries. At that point, Chibatoris was transferred to Milan, the site of the only federal prison in Michigan. His charges were increased to include first-degree murder. Because Michigan does not have the death penalty, Governor Frank Murphy attended to have his sentence reduced to life in prison without parole and Murphy's request was denied. Then Murphy asked that the execution be moved out of Michigan and occur in a state with a death penalty. This request was also denied. Murphy took his concerns all the way to President Franklin Roosevelt, but the death sentence was upheld, and Michigan was responsible for carrying it out. On July 7, 1938, Chiba Torres had many visitors, including meeting with his former wife, the woman who he abandoned many years earlier when she was pregnant with their daughter. His siblings, two brothers and a sister, came to see him at the prison. His daughter and her husband also visited him that day. People that he hadn't seen in years came to bid him farewell before the sentence was carried out. The execution of Chiba Torres was scheduled in the early morning hours of July 8, 1938. He would meet the hangman on a recently assembled gallows, made from pine planks and railroad ties. Phil Hanna, a farmer from Illinois, he made the trip to Milan with his own gallows set up. Hanna witnessed a botched hanging 20 years earlier where a man was strangled, dangling in the air for more than 20 minutes until he was dead. That horror show led Hannah to create several gallows at his farm, and in the early part of the 20th century, he took his work, known as humane hanging, throughout the United States. From Iowa to Arizona, Hannah never participates in the actual execution, but he made sure the setup was done properly. He checked the rope and the knot on the condemned's neck before giving his approval, 
while another person throws the switch, if you will, sending the condemned to their death. It was Midland County Sheriff Ira Smith who served as hangman for Chibatoris. He was paid $25 to make the 130-mile or 210-kilometer trip from Midland to Milan. Chibatoris was pleased to see that Hannah arranged his execution. Phil Hannah had a reputation, and the condemned knew that he would do his work well. After Phil Hannah set the noose and the hood on Chibatoris, he signaled that it was time. Sheriff Ira Smith threw the switch, and Chibatoris met his end. The execution was quick and successful. In the first half of the 20th century, Hannah's services were used at more than 60 executions in the United States. I'd actually love to do a story on him because I find him fascinating. But that's for another day. Anthony Chibatoris is buried at the Marble Park Cemetery, beneath a simple headstone bearing his year of birth and year of death. 1938 was 80 years ago, and that was the last time Michigan executed a criminal. We've spent some time far back in history when Michigan was a territory and public hangings were a spectacle for the family. But now, we need to come forward to the summer of 1996, when new mother, 18-year-old Rachel Timmerman, was sexually assaulted, and a deep spiral of fear and terror descended on her and her family. In early June 1996, Rachel Timmerman gave birth to her daughter, Shannon Verhag. While Rachel had struggled with drugs, she wanted to be a good mother and to stay out of trouble. By August of 1996, Rachel was working part-time at a restaurant, and her parents, who were divorced, took turns helping her and watching their grandchild, a beautiful, fair-haired little girl with chubby cheeks and silky blonde hair. Rachel had had some rough times, and she was on probation in 1996. The terms of her probation were strict. She couldn't be around any drugs or drink alcohol, and Rachel didn't want any more trouble. Rachel was doing her best to be a good mother to her infant daughter. The night of August 6th, Rachel walked to a friend's house to play cards. Other people at the house included Wayne Davis, a local man who was a friend of Rachel's family, as well as Marvin Gabrion and Marvin's nephew, Mikey. Gabrion was in his 40s, as was Wayne Davis. The men were more than two decades older than Rachel and Mikey, who were both in their late teens. Marvin Gabrion had been drinking, and he became intoxicated as the evening progressed. Rachel wasn't comfortable with how aggressive Gabrion had become, so she and Wayne decided to walk back to her house. Once the two were outside, Gabrion followed them out and insisted he would drive. With the four of them in his car, Mikey, Marvin, Wayne, and Rachel, Gabrion drove past Rachel's house. She assumed they were just going for a ride, but Gabrion forced his nephew and Wayne Davis out of the car, and he drove off with Rachel, taking her to an isolated area where he beat her before pinning her down and raping her. In the early hours of August 7th, Rachel appeared at her mother's house, crying and upset her face bruised, her nose bloody. She told her mother that Gabriel had sexually assaulted her, and Rachel was terrified. Her mother wanted her to report the assault to police, but Rachel refused. 
Gabriel had threatened her if Rachel told anyone, he would kill her and her baby. Rachel did find the courage to report the sexual assault, but within days of her filing that report, police received a tip that she'd violated her probation. When they came to her house to look around, evidence of drinking was discovered and she was taken into custody. Rachel would serve five months in jail, her full sentence, five months away from her family and her baby. Rachel filing a police report against Gabriel and a tip coming in that she was out of compliance? That was not a coincidence. Someone turned her in as punishment for the report. Meanwhile, Marvin Gabriel is gone, Rachel is in jail, and he's in the wind. On January 20th, 1997, sheriff's deputies finally locate Gabriel and arrest him for the rape of Rachel Timmerman. The arrest warrant listed three witnesses, Wayne Davis, Rachel Timmerman, and Gabriel's teenage nephew, Mikey Gabriel. Marvin Gabriel was jailed after his arrest, but was released after a friend posted bond for him on February 3rd, 1997. If you're thinking, what kind of friend bails out a rapist? Be aware that Gabriel told them that he was in jail for DUI. He made no mention of the rape. Ten days after Gabriel was released, Timmerman family friend Wayne Davis, who had been with Rachel the night of the alleged sexual assault, the same Wayne Davis listed as a witness on the arrest warrant for Marvin Gabriel, was planning to turn himself in at the local jail. Davis was set to serve 90 days for a DUI. Since his license was suspended, Davis had to ask a friend for a ride to jail. And when his friend arrived, Davis was gone. His home was mostly undisturbed. It looked like Davis had simply stepped away. His favorite jacket was left behind, and when they searched the residence, it was noticed that some stereo equipment was missing. The disappearance of Wayne Davis was concerning. But he was facing jail time. Maybe he decided to leave town rather than serve his 90 days. Rachel Timmerman was released from jail in spring of 97 but twice after she'd completed her sentence, she saw Marvin Gabriel and she reported the contact to police. She was terrified that he would make good on his threat to harm her and her young daughter. Within days of Rachel returning home, John Weeks, a young man she knew from her restaurant job, started calling her. He was talking her up, asking her out. Weeks was persistent, and Rachel finally agreed to go out with him. He suggested that she bring baby Shannon along for the date so that she wouldn't have to find a sitter, and again, Rachel agreed. It was Tuesday, June 3rd, that Rachel told her father about the date and that she was taking Shannon along with her. Rachel told him she wouldn't be out too late. She left the house with Shannon, a diaper bag, and her purse. This was the last contact Tim Timmerman had with his daughter. Rachel didn't return home that night or the next. Marvin Gabriel's rape trial was scheduled to begin on June 5, 1997. On June 4, several witnesses saw Marvin Gabriel driving a pickup truck with a metal boat loaded in the truck bed. In the cab of the truck, seated between Gabriel and another man, was a blonde woman. Witnesses would later identify Rachel as the woman in the truck. 
On the night of June 5th, Gabriel approached a group at a campsite. He introduced himself as Lance, an alias that Gabriel was known to use. He told them that his campsite didn't have room for the boat. Could he leave it with them? The campers agreed and watched as a glove-wearing Lance unloaded his boat. Later in the evening, these campers went for a walk and came upon Lance and another man, later determined to be John Weeks, at a campsite. Lance was standing next to the roaring fire, still wearing gloves. The other campers noticed there was plenty of room at this campsite for a boat, but they didn't comment on it. In the middle of the night on June 6th, one of Gabrion's neighbors was awakened by a loud noise. He looked out the window toward Gabrion's home to see Gabrion dragging a metal boat up the gravel driveway. He watched as Gabrion unloaded items from the boat, including life jackets, a length of metal chain, and concrete blocks. Once the boat was empty, Gabrion pulled the boat into the garage and took a metal file to the registration numbers on the bow. Realizing it would be a noisy night, his neighbor returned to bed. A few days later, the same neighbor noticed that Gabrion parked the boat in the yard with a for-sale sign on the bow. Meanwhile, Rachel Timmerman and her infant daughter were gone. No one had seen or heard from her since her dinner plans, and the trial date of June 5th came and went with no sign of her. Days after Rachel's date with John Weeks, her father received a letter sent by Rachel saying that she and the young man were in love and going to elope. She promised to write home again soon, and a week later, a second letter arrived. This one postmarked Little Rock, Arkansas. This letter said that she and Shannon were fine, and she would send their address once they got settled into their new home. But none of this sat right with Rachel's family. They didn't believe it. Rachel wasn't in love with anyone, and she wasn't likely to run off with a stranger. If she did leave to get married, she would have taken her things. She would have taken Shannon's belongings as well. She left with only her purse, a diaper bag, and her daughter. By the second week of June, 1997, officials in Nuego County had a serious situation on their hands. First, Marvin Gabrion should have gone on trial for the rape of Rachel Timmerman, but he was gone. Also missing, Rachel Timmerman and her baby. Wayne Davis went missing back in February, and John Weeks, the man who was thought to be Rachel's suitor, the one who asked her on the child-friendly dinner date, he would go missing soon leaving the sheriff's department with five missing people. So who was Marvin Gabrion? He was born into a poor family in Nuego County, the fifth of six children. The family of eight lived in a small cabin built by their father, and Marvin, being the youngest boy, was often the target of violence from his parents and brothers. Classmates described Marvin as smart and quiet, but also that he was dressed in rags and ill-fitting shoes. The Gabrion children were often dirty, leading to cruel remarks by classmates and an inability to make friends. Their mother encouraged her children to use drugs, and she was once busted for smuggling marijuana into her incarcerated son in 1980. After high school, Gabrion was often in trouble and was involved in several car and motorcycle accidents. He's known to have gone through the windshield of a car on more than one occasion. At one point, Gabrion was given a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Then there were the multiple head injuries from car accidents. 
as well as being struck in the head with a baseball bat during a fight, and he was also struck in the head during a carjacking. I'm not sure if he was the one doing the carjacking or if he was the one whose car was being stolen. Gabriel was described as paranoid, suspicious, often getting into physical altercations, and all of these worsened when he was drinking. His behavior was so out of control that he was regularly thrown out of homeless shelters because he could not behave. By 1996, Gabriel had nine arrests for drunk driving. While his behavior was often erratic and violent, his actions toward Rachel Timmerman in 1996 and 1997 show that he was also organized, determined, and focused. Let's return to the summer of 97. The family of Rachel Timmerman is on high alert, wondering if their beloved daughter and grandchild are safe. The question is answered over the July 4th holiday, when, on July 5th, boaters make a gruesome discovery in the reeds of Oxford Lake, located within the Manistee National Forest. What they thought was a mannequin was the body of 19-year-old Rachel Timmerman. Her body had surfaced from the bottom of the lake because of bacterial gassing. When her remains were pulled from the lake, Timmerman was fully clothed. Her left leg and waist were tightly bound with a shiny metal chain and two padlocks. A concrete block was attached to her torso through the chain. Rachel's wrists were handcuffed tightly behind her back. Her eyes and mouth were bound with duct tape. Her nose had been left uncovered. The coroner will later testify that Rachel was alive when she was thrown into the water. Oxford Lake was shallow, but the bottom of the lake? It was a seemingly endless sea of muck. Zero visibility murkiness cannot be explored by divers. It is nearly impenetrable from a rescue and recovery standpoint. They tried, though. They really did. Divers searched the lake repeatedly, hoping for some sign of the missing baby or the missing men. The water in that part of Oxford Lake, where Rachel's body was found, was about three feet deep, with 82 feet of soft muck beneath the water. With Rachel located, the next task was finding baby Shannon. Her cheerful, rosy-cheeked, blonde infant daughter was still missing. As police searched Gabriel's home, they found several items that linked him to the remains of Rachel Timmerman. They found two keys that unlocked the padlocks on the chains used to bind Timmerman. They also discovered concrete blocks that were stained with the same tar and paint materials as the blocks attached to Rachel's body. Also in Gabriel's home, they found evidence of Social Security checks belonging to a mentally ill disabled man named Robert Allen. Alan hadn't been seen since 1995, but Gabriel had used one of Alan's recently issued checks to cover the rent on his home. Gabriel's nephew, Mikey, who was with Timmerman and his uncle the night of the rape, he led police to a campsite that Gabriel favored. The campsite was just north of Oxford Lake. At the site, they found Marvin Gabriel's tent, bolt cutters, duct tape, a woman's hair clip, and silicone nipples for a baby bottle. As law enforcement searched for Marvin Gabriel, they traced Allen's Social Security checks, learning that they were being cashed in New York State. The FBI became involved in the search for Marvin Gabriel, and on October 14th, 
1997, he is arrested in Sherman, New York, a small town in the western end of New York State, just 30 miles east of Erie, Pennsylvania. Gabrian had opened a post office box in Allen's name and was collecting his Social Security checks. At the time of his arrest, Marvin Gabrian was carrying a Virginia driver's license in the name of Ronald Lee Struvels. I don't believe that Struvels met with foul play. His name only comes up in relation to Gabrian having his driver's license. A news story reported that in the fall of 1997, Gabrian was in Indiana trying to hire a carpenter for a job he needed done. He met Stravels when he applied for the job, and Gabrian later used Stravels' information to apply for a driver's license in his name. Upon his arrest in New York, Gabrian did not fight extradition back to Michigan. With Gabrian finally in custody, we need to look at what law enforcement is sorting through. It's thought that Gabrion murdered several people, starting with Rachel Timmerman and her 11-month-old daughter. Timmerman's brother told investigators that Gabrion had threatened Rachel's life if she testified against him in the rape trial, which was set to begin two days after her date with John Weeks. A date that Weeks scheduled at Gabrion's request so Gabrion could stop Timmerman from testifying against him. Other potential victims of Marvin Gabrion include 44-year-old Wayne Davis, the family friend of the Timmermans who was present the night Rachel was raped. Davis was listed as a witness in Timmermans' case against Gabrion. If you recall when Davis disappeared, the only things missing from his residence was himself and some stereo equipment. It was in spring of 1997 when Marvin Gabrion entered a local pawn shop looking to sell stereo equipment. The shop noticed that someone had scratched away the serial numbers on these items. Eventually, the body of Wayne Davis would be discovered in a lake near Gabrion's home. And then there's John Weeks, the 20-year-old who allegedly took Rachel and her daughter out at the request of Marvin Gabrion. He's also missing. Weeks was last seen about three weeks after his date with Timmerman. Weeks told his girlfriend that he and Gabrion were going to Texas to pick up drugs. When the girlfriend approached Gabrion over the summer asking after Weeks, Gabrion told her that they parted ways in Texas, with Weeks leaving for Arizona to stay with friends. The whereabouts of John Weeks are unknown. Also missing is Robert Allen, who was 53 years old when he was last seen in 1995. I was saddened when I consulted NamUs and learned that while they have a few x-rays for him and his fingerprints are on file, they've been unable to find anyone to submit DNA for testing. Remember, Robert Allen was the homeless man whose checks were cashed by Gabrion between 1995 and 1997. Gabrion likely met Allen in the Grand Rapids area, where Allen was well-known in the homeless community. Robert Allen has never been seen or heard from again. After a short trial in the summer of 1998, Gabrion was sentenced to five years for Social Security fraud. This gave law enforcement plenty of time to build a case against him for murder. In 1999, a federal grand jury was seated to weigh the charges against Gabrion. At the end of June 1999, they unsealed the indictment. Gabrion was going on trial for murder. 
The trial of Marvin Gabrion for the murder of Rachel Timmerman began February 25, 2002. During the trial, he took the stand in his own defense, claiming that Weeks or Davis could be responsible for Rachel's death. Gabrion also mentioned his work with the CIA. Spoiler alert, Gabrion never worked for the CIA. The trial had 11 days of testimony, and the jury would deliberate for two days before, on March 5th, they returned a verdict of guilty. Now, the trial enters the penalty phase. The body of Rachel Timmerman was found in Oxbow Lake, which is inside of the Manistee National Forest. Gabrion's attorney, Paul Mitchell, he argued that the crime occurred in Michigan, a state which does not have the death penalty. He further argued that life without parole was a suitable punishment for the murder of Rachel Timmerman. The prosecution, led by United States Attorney Tim Verhag, no relation to Rachel's daughter, Shannon Verhag, he put forth that Rachel Timmerman was alive when she was thrown into Oxford Lake, her hands cuffed behind her back, her mouth and eyes covered with duct tape, and her body weighted with cinder blocks and chains. He said that Rachel Timmerman met her end in the shallow water and deep silty muck of that lake, the lake that is within the Manistee National Forest, and because the murder occurred on land owned by the federal government, that is what made Gabriel eligible for a death sentence. During the penalty phase of the trial, the defense attempts to paint their client as someone deserving of a life sentence, not execution. Meanwhile, the prosecution pulls out a list of more than 50 people, people willing to testify about what kind of man is on trial. And some of those people testified to the horror of Rachel's death, chained and thrown into the lake to drown. Others spoke of the likelihood that Gabriel murdered 11-month-old Shannon Verhag because Gabriel had no use for the infant. Then there's the disappearance of John Weeks, who assisted Gabriel in murdering Rachel Timmerman, and the disappearances of Wayne Davis and Robert Allen. One can assume that Davis was murdered so he could not testify against Gabriel at the rape trial, and Allen was likely murdered as well, with Gabriel continuing to collect his checks and use that money to fund his activities. Others took the stand to talk about Gabriel's pattern of violence, as well as his indifference to human life. Two witnesses described how someone started a fire at each of their homes shortly after a disagreement with Gabriel. Another witness described how Gabriel began shooting a bolt-action rifle toward his house, this was after he'd asked Gabriel to leave a party. Those are just some of the people who lined up to testify about Gabriel's behavior, not to mention his actions in jail since 1998. Marvin Gabriel called Shannon Verhegg's paternal grandmother repeatedly while serving his sentence for Social Security fraud. He accused her of killing both Shannon and Rachel. He sent letters to Rachel's father asking for a photo of Rachel, saying that he knew where the baby was, and implying that if he sent the photo, he would reveal the location of Shannon's remains. When Timmerman relented and sent the picture, Gabriel used it for sexual gratification. Gabriel also placed several phone calls posing as political figures, trying to get himself transferred to a new prison. 
He molded soap into the shape of a handgun, painted it black, and planned to use it in an escape attempt. That item was confiscated before his plan could be carried out. But his bad behavior wasn't limited to the jail. Gabrion was abusive and disruptive throughout the trial, starting with his attorney's opening statement. Gabrion loudly interrupted him, asking, Why do you just let him stand up there and lie like that and never do anything about it? It's bullshit. During the penalty phase of the trial, Gabrion punched his attorney, David Stubbins, in the face. Gabrion was removed from the courtroom after that outburst. He would watch the proceedings via closed-circuit television. Gabrion was reportedly furious that the judge did not declare a mistrial. When he returned later in the week, he spent the last day of the penalty phase with his head on the table, sleeping through proceedings. Gabrion's actions, to me, they speak of manipulation, cruelty, and control. The planning, organization, and attention to detail of the crimes themselves? It's hard to believe that he was profoundly mentally ill, especially knowing that Rachel and likely Shannon met their fate just two days before his rape trial. Experts for the defense countered that the multiple vehicle accidents, fights, and beatings Gabrion sustained throughout his life, that those caused brain damage. A neurologist testified for the prosecution that Gabrion's brain showed no evidence of injury. A clinical neuropsychologist stated the same and went so far as to use the term malingering when describing Gabrion. On March 16, 2002, the jury determined that the government proved two statutory aggravating factors beyond a reasonable doubt. First, that Gabriel committed the murder in an especially heinous, cruel, and depraved manner. And second, that he committed the murder after substantial planning and premeditation. They further said that Gabriel presented a future danger to society and that he obstructed justice by murdering Rachel just prior to the rape trial and that he was likely responsible for the death of Rachel's daughter, Shannon. Marvin Gabrion was sentenced to death for his crimes. Gabrion, of course, appealed, starting with the fact that he was only 227 feet inside of the Manistee National Forest when Rachel died. That simple geography should not be the determining factor in his sentencing, especially since he insisted that she was killed outside of the forest and he only dumped her body in Oxford Lake. However, experts testified during the trial that drowning was the likely cause of death and the location in the lake where her body was recovered was well inside the National Forest. But Gabriel got lucky. One of his appeals worked, and in 2011, his conviction was upheld, but the sentence was overturned. Why? Because the judge did not advise jurors that in the state of Michigan, we don't have the death penalty. And if the jurors felt that he killed Timmerman on state property rather than federal property, Gabriel would be eligible for life without parole instead of the death penalty. When the penalty was overturned, a local reporter interviewed Rachel's father. I believe Mr. Gabriel should be put to death because of what he did to my daughter, Rachel. He put her in handcuffs and chains. He chained cement blocks to her. He wrapped her entire head with duct tape. He put her on a boat and drug her out into the middle of Oxford Lake. 
And then he threw her in. If that doesn't deserve the death penalty, what does? Now both Kim Verhaeg and Tim Timmerman say they want the federal government to push again for the death penalty. But for now, Gabrion is merely a convicted killer awaiting his sentencing. Gabrion's victory was short-lived. In 2013, the decision was reversed and the penalty reinstated. As of January 2017, Gabrion was working on another appeal, this time a civil suit to avoid execution. Federal death penalty cases are unusual. The last federal execution in the United States was back in 2003, 15 years ago. According to the Death Penalty Information Center in Washington, D.C., 31 states permit the death penalty. Four of those states, Colorado, Oregon, Pennsylvania, and Washington, have a moratorium in place on executions. 19 states and the District of Columbia do not allow executions. It's been more than 20 years since the Timmerman family received the horrific news that their daughter, Rachel, was dead. It's been more than 20 years since they asked the haunting question, Where is Shannon? Where is the baby? Marvin Gabrion is 64 years old, and he sits on death row at the Federal Correctional Institution in Terre Haute, Indiana. As of February 2018, they have not scheduled an execution date for him. While we know who did this, he's in prison and may someday be executed for his crimes, there isn't closure. This story isn't tied up neatly. We're left wondering, where is Robert Allen? Where is John Weeks? And perhaps the hardest question of all, where is Shannon? Where is the baby? Already Gone is a bi-weekly true crime podcast focused on cases from Michigan and the Great Lakes area. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. Please take a moment to subscribe, and if you haven't already, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. This helps other listeners find the show and the cases covered here. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. Thank you for listening, and please, be safe. Mm-hmm.